So Money Episode 1223, New York Times columnist and author of the new book, The Price You Pay for College, Ron Lieber, a replay. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Think about the kinds of questions you might ask about a $300,000 house, let alone a $600,000 house or a $900,000 house or a $1.9 million house, right? you know, and this purchase involves our children and their future. So, you know, we should be asking approximately 17 times more questions about this mm-hmm. than we do about the home purchase, but we don't, right? Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are going down memory lane with a very popular episode re-airing our conversation with the great Ron Lieber. You may read his columns in the personal finance section of the New York Times regularly. Well, he also has a book called The Price You Pay for College. It is his latest book in which he helps readers make the most financially and emotionally intelligent decision possible in selecting a school. I know many of you listening have small children or perhaps children on their way to college. And so you may find this episode relevant, in some cases, very timely. As we all know, college these days, if you pay full tuition, it's like a mortgage. You know, it's a nice house in most parts of this country. It's a high stakes money move. It's full of anxiety. It's full of stress and confusion. And it can sometimes lead us down the wrong path of over borrowing for a school that under delivers. So Ron and I talk about what is that calculus for figuring out whether a school is worth it and how to afford it. Ron has some out-of-the-box strategies and some smart financial solutions that I learned about for the first time, too. Here's Ron Lieber. Ron Lieber, welcome back to So Money. It's so nice to have you on the show and with so much great information you're going to unpack. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Okay. So the latest book, your latest and greatest, in addition to your big job, the New York Times, helping everyone navigate their finances, you have a book out now called The Price You Pay for College. You write, this is the most complex and emotionally fraught financial decision that many families will ever make. And I agree with that. My listeners agree with that. And if I told you I didn't check our kids' 529 college savings balances every day, Ron, (laughs) I would be lying. And my kids are six and three. So I think you're going to tell me I'm not neurotic, right? And and (laughs) we're going to get into sort of like what is appropriate planning. But firstly, how did we get here where we have tuition rates Let's just use a four-year private university as an example. Around what three hundred thousand dollars, which is about the price of an average home in this country. What is driving the price of college to this point? Well, it's not cheap to do this well, right? But the thing that people tend to seize on—you know, the climbing walls and the lazy rivers and the fancy buildings—that is not the majority of the expense. It turns out that these colleges are expensive to run because the people who make them great are themselves expensive, right? If you want to become a professor, you spend at least five years in graduate school, and people who spend that much time 
training expect to be compensated. Um, there are more administrators for every thousand undergraduates than there were a generation ago when today's parents were in college. And that's for good reason. It's because we want more people in positions of authority to make sure the internet network is functioning and make sure that the career counseling is up to snuff and make sure that the mental health counseling system works better than they did when we were in college, uh, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, we want to make sure that people are following the regulations, that um, people from low-income backgrounds and people of color feel more comfortable than they did, uh, you know, even 10 or 20 mm -hmm. years ago. And all of this costs money because the people who are good at these things require a salary and benefits. So I shouldn't be upset. <laughs> these are all good. I can get behind these reasons. I, I can get behind, okay, it's expensive because we're putting money towards human capital. Sure. I mean, if you believe what the Wall Street Journal editorial page has to say about this is that, you know, these schools are beset by administrative bloat that comes from the fact that uh, the schools are overly woke and, you know, paying too much attention to diversity and whatnot. But it turns out that we get the regulations around equity that we vote for, right? We got Title IX because we actually wanted women to have an equal place on undergraduate campuses. Um, and so if you don't like the regulations that allow, say, you know, someone with a mental health condition to thrive on a campus, then in a way that they might not have a generation ago, you can go vote for that at the ballot box. But, mm -hmm. you know, we have the regulations that we ask for via the politicians that we vote for. And, you know, if we wanted something different, right, if we wanted professors um, who were paid less, if we wanted fewer administrators, I don't know that we would necessarily like the product that would result from that, particularly because it is a product that we are delivering to our kids. Mm -hmm. And later on, I look forward to learning more about the sort of experiences that we should be looking for in college. I really love your book because it really challenges families to think about value in a way that maybe they hadn't before. And you did some phenomenal research. But let's talk about planning because I have a lot of listeners, Ron, and I'm sure you get a lot of people writing in asking whether it's quote unquote insane, neurotic to open up a college savings account for a yet to be born child. This, these are real people out there, worried, panicked. They're not even parents yet they have prioritized college savings. And I, I think you're in the camp of encouraging families to begin this conversation earlier than they might. Um, but what is the best first step or, or what's your first bit of advice for people who are just embarking on this and this idea of planning for college? Sure. Well, I think the first step is to sit down with your spouse if you have one uh, or your ex if you have one of those and and try to get on the same page and say, Look, um, what do we have in mind for a goal here? And maybe even to take a step back from there, um, to have a real conversation, maybe one that's different from the ones that you've had previously, about what you really valued, not just about the experience you may have had as an undergraduate and, and the training you got as a college student, but about how it felt when your parent or parents did or did not pay for the whole thing or none at all. 
And do you want your kids to have that same feeling that you did? Or do you want them to have a different feeling entirely? And if you do want them to have a different feeling, is that actually a reasonable goal? And do the two of you, if there are two of you, actually agree on these things, right? You can't make a plan until you're in alignment on kind of the overarching goal and and the, the kinds of feelings that you know, you as parents and, and also you, you want your kids um, to have about this process in the first place. Preparing your kid is also really important. I know when I was uh, going through this process, it was an abrupt arrival. Like I, it just kind of fell on my plate and my parents, both immigrants, although very much wanting me to go to college, did not save for college and didn't even think that I should go anywhere except for the state school. They hadn't communicated this to me. <laughs> I was like getting all the applications from the Ivy Leagues and the private schools. And they were like, oh, what? You, we can't afford this. And it was this very rude awakening for me. Um, I do fault them a little bit for that. We got through it. But what's your advice for parents and their eighth graders or ninth graders? What are the conversations you can be having at that point that um, won't freak anybody out? Because I, what I, what I remember most about that experience for myself, Ron, was that I felt like they had pushed me to work so hard throughout my years in school, especially in high school, that if the quote unquote plan was to not save for me and just maybe have me go to the state school, like I could have maybe stressed a lot less about my SATs. <laughs> I could have had more fun in college, mom and dad. But uh, that's, you know, that's for the therapy sessions. Tell me what parents should talk to their kids about. I think it's only fair that someone starting high school have a basic sense of how the system works, right, in terms of what schools cost and the ways in which they give out discounts, um, and that it's only fair that the parent or parents who are involved have the beginnings of a conversation with that kid about what they believe that they will be able to pay for and what they believe that they will be willing to pay for. And it sounds like in your household, there might have been a disconnect between uh, ability to pay and willingness to pay. And then there also might have been a disconnect between the parents and the child about what the child thought she might have been working for. Um, now, that said, I, you know, I never want to cast too much blame on parents because this system is enormously complicated. It often kind of catches up with people very quickly and then bites them in the ass. And it is not their fault. It is not their fault mm -hmm. um, that this system is so complicated and hard to understand. And talking about money is difficult. And talking about money with your children is challenging. Um, and so I acknowledge all of this. Um, but I do believe that the right answer to the question is to start earlier rather than later so that everybody knows where everybody else stands on the matter. And I think you're right about while you want to understand your own experience and what you valued about that, that you also have to meet your kid where she's at or where he's at and what are their goals. And I know in eighth grade, you don't know a whole lot, but I think it's worth checking in, you know, eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade, because the right college out there, is, which we'll get to, is not always what you think. It requires an exercise in really knowing your kid and what they need. Uh, what does planning for college really entail or should entail? We often talk about 529 plans and you know, filling out FAFSA, but you say there are many ways to save for this expense and you include roping in grandma and grandpa into the equation. 
Sure. So we can break this down into three parts, right? We can Mm -hmm. talk about what to save. We can talk about how to save, and we can talk about who's doing the savings. Um, The what to save um, is, uh, you know, this is an expression I first learned from um, Carl Richards, the financial writer who is the author of The Behavior Gap and wrote the Sketch Guy column for the Times for a long time. You know, he's always going around the world saying, save as much as you reasonably can. Right. Um, and that's always the right answer. Um, save as much as you can uh, and don't beat yourself up if you can't save any more. But if you really want to put some numbers to it, uh, I talked to a couple of Kevins uh, who are financial planners, Kevin, um, uh, Kevin Mahoney and Kevin McKinley for the book. And, uh, you know, they have kind of different versions of the same general approach. The McKinley plan is to sort of think in fractions. Right. We're going to save a third of this. We're going to take a third of the expense out of current income during the four years, and we're going to borrow a third. Or maybe you divide it into you know quarters, right? Maybe you save a quarter, the kid borrows a quarter, you borrow a quarter, and then you spend a quarter out of current income. Something like that gives you an anchor. And if you are saving for a state university or you only plan to spend twenty-five dollars or $30,000 a year, you can get to that savings goal with you know maybe 100 bucks a month if it earns 6 or 7% over the next 18 years if you start when the kid is an infant, right? So you got to decide what to save. Um, the Kevin Mahoney plan is a little bit different. Um, he's often working with clients who still have student loan debt of their own. Right. But he asks that every time they get a little extra money or they pay down a debt, they take whatever they were putting towards the previous expense and just start tossing that at college savings. And people often catch up by using that method. So that's the that's the what to save. There's the how to save, um, which is usually 529 plans, but it doesn't always have to be, you know, as as you've probably discussed before. 529 plans have a whole bunch of tax advantages. Um, They are nice for people who live in the 30-some states where you get a state tax break for the money that you put in. And then everybody gets a federal tax break on the way out because the money that has grown often over 20 years in these accounts um, comes out free of capital gains taxes as long as you use it for higher education expenses. Um, so, you know, mine has been sitting around for 16 years now, and those were some really good years in the market. And there are a lot of taxes that I am not going to be paying, and I'm really happy about that. And, you know, you talked before um, about the fact that you're constantly checking the 529 balance. And we both know that that is not good financial behavior to be watching your returns every day. But there is something about getting that 529 statement, which I still get on paper, that makes me feel really good about myself. Not so much because the figure is going up or going down, but because I know that I am doing something great for my kid by saving as much as I reasonably can, right? And then there's the who. Um, And I'm a big believer that you should have an open and and forthright conversation with grandparents if there are any in the mix and just say to them, look, um, this thing is crazy expensive. It costs way more than it did back when you helped me go to college myself. There's a pretty good chance that we're not going to be able to pay for the whole thing just out of savings or just out of our income. And anything that you can do now to help would be great. Um, We want you to take care of yourself. But if you are inclined to help, helping now while the money has time to grow and compound would be a great thing. And if the parents, if the grandparents don't have any money to spare, great. If they can help with childcare in the early years, which gives Mm -hmm. you the ability to work a side hustle and, you know, put that much more money away, uh, that's an equally great contribution that the grandparents can make. 
I love that. You know, I was pleasantly surprised when sifting through your book that, and I didn't know this, maybe this is a, a new thing. I don't know if it was reality when I was applying to college, but the sticker or list price is not often what families end up paying because universities and colleges will sometimes discount and give applicants, whether that's through a scholarship or a grant or merit aid, a discount that significantly reduces the price. So is that to suggest, first, I want to learn a little bit more about this, but then is it also to suggest to families that we don't have to narrow down our search just based on price, that maybe there is that opportunity to to go to your dream school for less, but how do you even know that until you apply? Well, this cuts to the very heart of the matter. One of the things that I find so problematic about the way the system works now is that, you know, this is arguably the biggest financial decision, you know, families will ever make, particularly if there's two or more children involved. It's an incredibly large number potentially. But you go into the process and you don't know until the very end what it is that it's going to cost. And often, uh, you know, it can be $100,000 less than what the list price was, even if your family is wealthy, right? So how can that be? What is going on here? Well, the thing that's changed dramatically since today's middle-aged parents um, were in college was that this whole new uh, financial aid and discounting has emerged. So, you know, back in the olden times, uh, financial aid was based almost entirely around need. Right. If your income was low enough, if your assets were too few, um, if the school could afford to help you and it wanted you to come badly enough, it would give you some aid. And so with the federal government. And that was relatively simple. But what's happened since then is that schools have started offering what's become known as merit aid. This started with you know, five or $10,000 discounts given to the very top students to try to keep them um, from going to more selective institutions. Uh, Because if they went to the less selective institutions, those less selective institutions would have better statistics to report to US News so that they could rise in the rankings so they could attract even more attractive students, which is all well and good until the university down the street catches wind of the fact that you're discounting too. And then within you know a generation, all but the 40 or 50 most selective institutions in the country are now offering these discounts that have nothing to do with need. So there are all sorts of families who earn $300,000 a year who are getting $100,000 in discounts from schools like Oberlin and McAllister um, and Occidental and Whitman and the University of Alabama, great institutions, right, who do not need the money. But because there is this marketplace for above average students at any given institution, you can get these crazy discounts and there is often no way to predict whether you will get them. Yeah, merit aid is problematic in the way that you have um, discovered. And it obviously goes against the goal of being equitable, which a lot of these schools strive to be. What's the consequence or can we work towards a better system? Well, to try to answer the consequence question can be hard because it is never clear from the very limited data that exists what sort of trade-offs any institution is making in any given year. When it gives out merit aid to a wealthy family, does that necessarily mean that there is 
less money left over for low-income families who then don't get into the school at all? Or is it possible that by giving a $20,000 discount to a wealthy family, the school brings in that many more students who are still profitable and they can use the tuition that they do pay to cross-subsidize lower-income mm-hmm. families? We don't know the answer to that question and the schools aren't telling us, right? So all we can be is deeply suspicious of the fact that this is so intensely opaque. Now, you can find out what percentage of students at any given institution are um, qualifying for Pell Grants, like what percent are truly low income. That's something you can find in what's known as the college scorecard data. So we can check on this stuff, and we should, right? Because diversity should be important to us. Um, All of the best research in this area um, you know, comes to the conclusion that uh, students thrive, all students thrive um, by learning in diverse environments. So this, these are things that we should absolutely check up on. But, you know, if we wanted to rid ourselves of this system altogether, it would require the sort of collective market movement away from this kind of discounting mm-hmm. that would almost certainly, and in fact has in the past more than once, uh, raised the eyebrows of the antitrust authorities at the Department of Justice. Well, that's increasingly we are starting to look at colleges with more of a, a, I don't know, more scrutiny. And I think that 2020 with everyone going virtual, a lot of students going virtual and really questioning the quote unquote value of a college experience. I think that was a healthy thing in some ways because, in, and I want to know in your re- in your research, did you discover some schools that are better off not <laughs> being in business anymore? Because I think there are some, I think there are some schools that might be better off going away because they're just not delivering. Well, you know, I'm, I, uh... I'm making a sort of mental list in my head of the schools Mm -hmm. that have gone out of business or have had near-death experiences in the last couple of years. And I don't feel like I know enough about their specific market offering to say for sure whether they deserve to die. To me, the most interesting part of uh, what feels like it might be the beginnings of a shakeout is the schools that have had near-death experiences and then have come back from the dead, right? So Hampshire... Antioch, Sweetbriar College. You know, if you pay a medium amount of attention to higher education, you you know something about these schools. You've heard of them. And they all actually offered a a pretty... uh, you know, pretty understandable, uh, you know, um, sort of position in the market, right? These school, these are schools that stood for something, um, and they may not have stood for things that as many people wanted as they used to. But you know, these were institutions that should have been able to attract, um, you know, some student body, and yet, you know, so, some sizable student body such that they were a- able to make it work. And what ended up happening, right, was that in, in most of these cases, it was the alumni that came out of the woodwork. Um, to, you know, fight for the survival of the institution. And I think that tells us something important um, because one of the things that um, people seek when they select an undergraduate education is that they're looking to kind of find their people, right? They're, they're, they're looking for the friends who will carry them up uh, and through life. Um, they're, they're seeking a sort of kinship, right? And when an institution has a near-death experience, um, it almost 
can feel like if you're kind of part of the um, alma mater diaspora, that like a part of you is dying too, right? People seek a sense of belonging. They want something to belong to, um, you know, and, and in some sense, they want a label to attach to themselves. And so, you know, to me, that that's a the fact that these that it is very hard to kill a college harder than we think um says something about how we value what they stand for in the first place i appreciate that and and it transitions us well into my next question which is you know you spend a lot of time in the book encouraging readers to think deeply and more broadly about what a college experience means. As a student going through today's world, what does a college really, where can a college really show up for you and be a support system for you and be a launching pad for you? And so the question you ask in the book that you want your readers to ask themselves is what are we buying into, right? Which to some extent is subjective, but could you talk a little bit more about you know, how to walk through this exercise and what maybe universally these days really does matter when it comes to that college experience. You mentioned diversity, which I hope is on everyone's list, but what are some other things? Sure. Well, I think the first thing that people have to do is they they have to ask themselves you know what? What is college in the first place? Right, not to like get all existential on it, but wh- what is actually what is the actual point of the exercise? And I wasn't sure what the answer to the question was, so I just kept asking it and asking it and asking it, and I kept hearing the same three things over and over. Um, people go to college uh, for the education, they go to college for the kinship and the friendship. And they go to college for the credential. And maybe it's the kind of credential that, you know, gives them a firm grip on the middle class that they might not have had previously, right? They can become an accountant or a teacher or, um, uh, you know, or, or a nurse um, and, you know, get a firm hold uh, on a, a rung of the social class ladder that maybe is higher than they, they were before. And there's that part of the credential. And then some people are sort of reaching and striving for more of a kind of gold-plated name brand, you know, degree from an institution that will open doors that might not have been open to them previously. So that's the stuff that people are shopping for. So you have to ask yourself, right, what is, what is my definition of success and how much is enough? And once you know among those three things what you're really shopping for, then you can go down a longer list of things that might be worth paying extra for above and beyond what your state university costs. Um, But you have to ask a lot of really careful questions about each of them. So it's everything from what sort of schools or what sort of programs within the school will lead to higher salaries or lower salaries? Um, which institution is going to give me the best odds of getting into grad school if I happen to be one of these 17-year-olds that just knows that they want to be you know, a bench scientist with a, with a chemistry PhD? Um, how much is size going to matter to me? And if I know I want a smaller school, what is the best data uh, to use to try to measure how small the experience will feel? Um, what about amenities and the which ones are important to me and which aren't? Um, are there going to be actual teachers in the classroom or is it going to be adjuncts or graduate students? Does the school have any way at all of measuring or proving how much progress students actually make in terms of what they learn. It turns out that these institutions know very, very little about how much actual learning is going on, uh, which is kind of astonishing, right? Um, What advantage might there be to going to a single-sex institution, particularly if I am female and particularly if I'm interested in science? You might guess that there are some outsized benefits to going to a small um, 
uh, single sex institution if you are a, a woman who is interested in science and on and on and on. Right. So. I try to give people, you know, a list of questions in each of these categories uh, that they can take with them on their shopping expeditions in order to end the process as kind of a more informed consumer so they can decide for themselves when, if ever, it is worth paying up to $200,000 more than whatever their flagship state university costs. And the other takeaway that I got in reading this in your book is that you really want to encourage families to to feel empowered and know that it's okay to ask these questions where I think the positioning of colleges for a long time has been like, we're the best. We know what we're doing. If it's not on our website, it's almost, you almost feel like it's a nuisance, like asking these very specific questions or you don't want to be a bother, but, but this is what, this is our job as families. Like this is, we have to do the investigating because it's not just all going to be put out there. Right. I, I mean, think about the kinds of questions you might ask about a $300,000 house, let alone right. a $600,000 house yes. or a $900,000 house or a $1.9 million house, right? Um, you know, and this purchase involves our children and their future. So, you know, we should be asking approximately 17 times more questions about this mm -hmm. than we do about the home purchase, but we don't, right? Now, why don't we do that? Well, for a whole bunch of reasons, right? We sort of feel like we're supplicants in this relationship where, you know, we're, we're the ones kind of begging for entry. The fact of the matter is, is that, the, you know, the vast majority of undergraduate institutions are sort of hurting for students and they're not sure that they're going to make their number each year. Um, it, but a, a, another challenge is, is that, um, you know, oftentimes the best place to and the best time to answer to ask questions of the expert is when you're on campus visiting a school but if you're in a group information session or you're on a tour uh, way more often than not your kid is with you and they are gonna like punch you in the ribs <laughs> if you get too pointed um and pressing um, because they'll feel like you're embarrassing them. So one of the best things I've seen, so I toured, you know, I, I took dozens of these tours over several years just to see how this information was being presented and also what was being left out often deliberately. Um, and the thing that I love that's starting to happen at a few schools is that they separate the kids from the parents. So the parents can ask all of the knowing questions that they want and the kids don't have to roll their eyes. And the other thing that blew my mind, once or twice I ran into high school juniors who were just out on their own, like, you know, in their car at age 16 or 17, sometimes with a friend who were just touring the schools without their parents uh, at all. Um, and I thought that was awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. I, I, you yeah. know? Um, and so, uh, yes, we should be asking more questions. Yes, I understand. Sometimes it feels like it's hard. Um, if you're embarrassed by it, maybe wait until your kid hopefully has a whole collection of acceptance letters and then really ask. Right. Because nobody's going to yank the admissions offer away just because you have 15 pointed questions. And I actually think that if you don't have 15 pointed questions, you're probably doing it wrong. And you mentioned earlier about women's colleges, Ron, I just want to highlight, because I love that chapter about Smith College and your breakfast with the president of Smith College, a woman's college. And the quote that she said, um, you, it's a four-year intervention where students see that women can lead. And it gave me goosebumps because I know that I got the pamphlet for Smith College. I lived actually down the street from Smith College. Um, or sorry, I lived down the street from Bryn Mawr College, which is another women's college. And I just never um, 
considered a woman's college because I just had this perception that it would limit my experience in school. But uh, that chapter really opened my eyes and I have a daughter and I'm kind of excited that maybe she would consider one day a woman's college because I, I see how the it's so valuable. It can be so valuable. So yeah, I'm so glad that spoke to you. So I am yeah. the father of two daughters. And all I really ask of people is that they go into this with an open mind. And going into this with an open mind just means considering it as a possibility. So somewhere along the way, if you happen to be near a woman's college sometime during the four years um, before your daughter applies for college, just go take two hours and check it out. You know, pick up a little literature, sign up for an email list. Just think about it, right? Just think about it. Um, I just want people to have an open mind about it. Ron Lieber, thank you so much. The book is The Price You Pay for College. Parents or parents-to-be, grandparents, kids, pick up this book. I'm telling you, I've covered personal finance for 20 years. I've interviewed a lot of people in the college world, the personal finance world. And I the information is very scattered, but this book puts it all in one nice, neat resource. And it's a great read. Ron, congratulations. Thank you so much for saying so. And thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Ron for joining us. The book, again, is called The Price You Pay for College. If you like what you're listening to, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. I'll see you back here on Friday, and I hope your day is so money. Money.